أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد We continue our examination of the events that unfolded after the Islam of Hamza, the uncle of the Prophet after the attempts of Quraysh to negotiate with the Prophet so that he backs down and he stops from his mission. When Quraysh realizes that the Prophet is not backing down, he is firm and he's getting more and more followers. He's not willing to negotiate with us. He's not compromising with us. He's firm in advancing this mission. They resort to violence and torture. They begin to torture Muslims who had no one to protect them. So if a member of a tribe would become Muslim in Mecca, that tribe would torture him, pressure him, ostracize him, imprison him, hold him captive, or even starve him. They would withhold food from him. That was a way to pressure him to stop following the Prophet to renounce the message of Islam. By the way, amongst those who was known to torture some early Muslims was Umar ibn al-Khattab, right? This is before he embraced Islam. He was known to torture Muslims. Tabari narrates that there was a woman from Bani Mu'ammal or Mu'ammal from that tribe. They come from the larger tribe of Bani Adi or Uday. She had declared her Islam. She was owned by that tribe. Umar took it upon himself to beat her and torture her until he would get tired. Her name, uh, she, the name is not mentioned. She is a woman from Bani Mu'ammal. Maybe you'll, f I could probably find her name in the works of biography, but generally speaking, her name is not mentioned. She was a woman from the tribe of Bani Mu'ammal. He would torture her. He would beat her until he would become tired. When he would become tired, do you know what he would tell her? He says, I apologize to you that I had to stop because I can no longer beat you anymore. He would say that to her, yeah. It was very rough. He would torture her until he literally could not continue anymore. His hands had no energy. And her, tri her tribe allowed Umar to do that to her as a punishment for her. Why did you become Muslim? Why did you embrace the message of the Prophet Just try to imagine what happened to those early Muslims. Imagine what they had to go through. You know, these days we Muslims were living in our comfortable lives and then for petty things we lose patience. Oh, it's so difficult to be religious. It's so difficult to observe our obligations. We have no clue what those early Muslims had to go through. Do we have to go through any of this? Even with all this Islamophobia, do you have to go 
through 1% of this, honestly? No. And there's no one to protect you, no one. No one can protect you, no one has the power to protect you. Amongst those families who were severely persecuted by the Meccans was the family of Yasir. They were amongst the early Muslims who were persecuted and tortured. They were humble, they were very weak, they didn't have any family or tribe in Mecca. It seems that they embraced the religion of Islam after about 30 companions. So they were amongst the very early Muslims, amongst the first 30, 40 Muslims to become, first 30, 40 companions to become Muslim were the family of Yasir. Ammar was the first one to become Muslim, Ammar ibn Yasir, he hears about the message of the Prophet he goes to the house of Arqam, remember the house of Arqam, it was the headquarters for the mission of the Prophet in those early years, Ammar hears about the message of the Prophet, he's so thirsty to learn from the Prophet, so he goes to the house of Arqam, he meets the Prophet he asks the Prophet, tell me, what is this new religion? The Prophet explains to him what Islam is, he reads to him verses from the Qur'an, he becomes Muslim. When he becomes Muslim, he takes the message to his family. His father Yasir becomes Muslim, his mother Sumayya becomes Muslim, his brother Abdullah becomes Muslim. What a blessed family. Really the first family in Islam, all the members of the family, they joined the religion of Islam. The two parents, and the two brothers. And that was really a great honor for the family of Yasir. Now the tribe of Bani Makhzum would torture them. Sumayya initially was a slave. Sumayya, the mother of Ammar, initially was a slave. Then Yasir, Yasir was a free man. Yasir marries her later, then he has children from her but they didn't really have a strong tribe to protect them. They were weak, people who were exploited in their society. The tribe of Bani Makhzum would torture the family of Yasir. So what they would do, they would get them in the hot summer days, at the time of noon, when the ground of Mecca is scorching hot. You know, I've, you've seen videos in Iraq and in Saudi Arabia, they literally can cook an egg on the ground. You can fry an egg on it. That's how hot it is. It's very hot. You can't walk on it. You'll burn your feet. They would take them without their clothes, like their back exposed, and they would have them sleep on the ground, either on their belly or on their back. That was daily torture for the family of Yasir. They would do this to Yasir, to his wife Sumayya, to his son Ammar, daily, daily torture. Ibn Hisham narrates, Ibn Hisham the historian, he narrates that sometimes the Prophet would pass by that scene. You know this was very difficult for the Prophet to see. When you see your early companions suffer like that, imagine what happens to you. He would pass by them, he had no supporter, he couldn't do anything, this is a big tribe. He would pass, pass by them, seeing them being tortured, he would say, Sabran ala Yasir fa jannah. O family of Yasir, have patience. 
Jannah awaits you. Paradise awaits you. He would try to comfort them, he would try to give them patience. Now Sumayya was a very firm believer in Allah. No amount of torture would stop her from saying, La ilaha illallah, there is no God but Allah. They would try to force her to worship the idols, she would reject. No amount of torture would move this amazing woman. And from believing in the Holy Prophet they imposed on her to worship the idols, she rejected. Abu Jahl, Abu Jahl the Prophet calls him the Pharaoh of this Ummah, that's how evil he was. Abu Jahl took it upon himself to torture her, he's torturing her severely, stop worshipping in the one God, worship in Lat wal Uzza, say Lat and Uzza, the names of their idols, denounce Muhammad, attack Muhammad, condemn him, she would not. He takes a big boulder and he puts it on her as she's suffering, she would not. Nothing would move this amazing lady until this evil enemy of God, he takes out a spear, a dagger and he stabs her below the belly and she bleeds to death and she becomes the first shaheed in Islam the first one who died in Mecca and the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was Sumayya, this amazing lady. Even in those moments, she would not stop. Shortly after Yasir, her husband is tortured to death and he becomes the second shaheed. Now Ammar is looking at the scene. Imagine your parents die in that way. He saw them being tortured to death before his eyes. They came after him. Oh Ammar, you saw what we did to your parents. This is not a joke, we're serious, we're going to kill you. Ammar was in his 20s around this time. He was a young man. He couldn't handle the torture anymore. There was psychological torture on him seeing his parents die. And on top of that, the physical torture, he couldn't handle it. So they told him, will kill you or reject the one God, condemn Muhammad, will save you. Under immense, immense pressure, Ammar does what they want to save his life. He says, okay, Lat Uzza, and he denounces the Prophet They free him, they let him go. But Ammar is burning inside. How did I do that? Some narrations state for a while, he did not show himself to the Prophet He was so ashamed until he comes to the Prophet The Prophet tells him, how are you Ammar? He tells him, I'm not good. I'm not good at all. I'm in evil. I'm in badness. He tells him, why? What happened? He tells the Prophet what happened. He tells him, Ya Rasulullah, they tortured me. They killed my parents in front of me as you know. I couldn't take it anymore and I just said it. The Prophet he told him, how's your heart? He says, my heart is fixed in faith, mutma'in, confident, 100%. The Prophet tells him, in that case, if they torture you again, do what you did again. Do what you did again to save your life. 
When the Prophet tells him that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals verse 106 of Surah An-Nahl, the bee. Allah reveals this verse. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, مَنْ كَفَرَ بِاللَّهِ مِنْ بَعْدِ إِيمَانِهِ Allah is attacking those who lose faith after believing in God and the Prophet. Allah makes an exception. إِلَّا مَنْ أُكْرَهَ وَقَلْبُهُ مُطْمَئِنٌ بِالْإِيمَانِ Except the one who's coerced, who's forced, but his heart is full of faith. His heart is fixed with Iman. They're an exception. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praises what Ammar did. In honor of what Ammar did, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals a verse in the Holy Quran. Now this incident, as you just mentioned, referred to it, establishes the validity of what? Taqiyyah. We have something called Taqiyyah. And the followers of Ahlul Bayt have historically been condemned and attacked because of Taqiyyah. When Taqiyyah was instituted early in Mecca, we're talking about a few years after Ba'tha, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala institutes, establishes the permissibility of Taqiyyah. Basically Taqiyyah means when you're in danger, whether you or your family, if you're in danger, or even your property is in danger, you're allowed to conceal your real faith, to protect your life and the life of your family. That's taqiyah. Allah praises it. Allah says, accept the one who's forced, he's in danger, but his heart is full of iman. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually praises that in the Holy Qur'an. Now remember Ammar, he condemned the Prophet under torture, right? Condemning the Prophet, is that a normal sin? It's a big sin. That makes you leave Islam. Someone slanders the Prophet, you can no longer be a Muslim. How do you say, Ashadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah when you're condemning the Prophet? It's heresy, it's kufr. But Allah praises it in the Qur'an. Why? because it was in taqiyah, it was in the circumstance of taqiyah. He did not mean it, his heart was full of faith, he even felt bad about it, but he did so to save his life because they told him we'll kill you. That's taqiyah. And the Imams of Ahlul Bayt instructed their followers, the Shia, to practice taqiyah throughout history when they live in hostile environments, hostile governments, you have to practice taqiyah. Now, is taqiyah optional or is it mandatory? It depends on the situation. If you're asked to condemn Allah or the Prophet or Imam Ali salam, we've seen that happening throughout history, right? If you're forced to condemn them, to slander them, taqiyah is optional here. You can choose to do taqiyya and that's fine and you can choose to die in that way and you become a shaheed, that's also fine, yes. Okay. So why, that's why what uh, Sumayya and her husband did, they did not do taqiyya, yeah. they became shaheed. Yeah. Ammar did taqiyya, Quran praised him. Okay. So both is allowed, it's optional. Okay, so are, but are they equal in the eyes of God? Are they equal in the eyes of God? That's a good question. It also depends. The reason why maybe 
Sumeya and Yasser's sacrifice was important is that it came at a very critical time. See, sometimes the religion is strong, right? Religion is strong. Whether I sacrifice or not, it's not going to make a big difference for the religion. The religion is strong, it has many followers. Scholars say in this case, it's better to do taqiyah. You can still, you know, in, in one hadith, the Imam Ali was asked about two people who were asked to condemn Imam Ali So the Imam Ali said one of them did taqiyah, Allah rewarded him. The other one, he rushed to heaven. He went to heaven. So both is allowed. It depends on their circumstances. When Sumayya and Yasir made that sacrifice, it really boosted the morale of Muslims. It's, it, it, it scared the Quraysh. Wow, these Muslims are willing to go that far for this religion? It really made them think twice about the seriousness of this religion. So it was really instrumental. Their sacrifice was instrumental. So if religion, uh, the, the safety of religion does not depend on it, it's better to do taqiyya, but it's still optional. So that's optional taqiyya. If you're required to condemn Allah or the Prophet or the Imam, it's optional. Depending on the circumstances, doing taqiyya may be better or sacrificing may be better. Uh, Hijr ibn Adi, how many of you, Hijr ibn Adi, how many of you have heard of him? When Muawiyah forced Hijr and his companions to condemn Imam Ali they refused. They were killed one after the other. This was, I believe, at the time of Imam al-Hassan Yes. They were going to kill him and his son. He made a request, start with him first. He was told why. He said, I'm sure I'm not going to waver. But I don't know. I want to leave this world knowing my son died on the right path. In Syria, remember ISIS, they exhumed his body. Well, they tried to dig his grave. They couldn't. But they tried to exhume his body. Hijr ibn Adi. He's... Well, first of all, Allah does protect the believers. They did try to dig the grave, but maybe it was deeper, or Allah finds ways to protect them. Yeah. They did burn something, but it's very unlikely that they burned his body. I don't think they burned it, they raised it, they demolished it. There's a shrine, they demolished it, but they didn't burn the body, no. They demolished the shrines, you know, because they believe this is shirk. But yes, for Hujr ibn Udi, they tried to exhume his body. Now they burned something. Some believe they may have burned his body. Others say Allah protected him. They probably burned something else. So that's when taqiyya is optional. When is it mandatory? No, we're, we're not now, we're not talking about the aqidah now, where you're condemning, you know, God or the Prophet or the Imams. When it comes to acts of worship, like how you pray. If I want to pray the Shia way, and if as a result of that, I'll get in trouble, there will be harm. I'll get arrested, I'll get tortured, I will, I will get killed. In this instance, I have to do taqiyya. If I don't and I pray the Shia way, my salah is batal, it's invalid. Yes? Every other Islamic act, the same applies to it. So when it comes to act of worship, if you're in the state of taqiyya, 
where there is danger, there's imminent danger, right? Where you know if you do the salat, you'll get arrested, you'll be tortured, you'll be killed, your property will be confiscated. In those circumstances, when you're, when you're in public, pray like them. It's mandatory. If you violate taqiyya, your salah becomes invalid. Your wudu becomes invalid. Yes. Maybe they do, maybe they don't uh, do something if they see you doing stuff different. But you have the fear of maybe. Yes, if you have a legitimate fear. Mm-hmm. Not, the fear apply to the fear. Yes, if you have a legitimate fear that if I pray in this area, according to my school of thought, I will get in trouble. If you have a legitimate concern, do taqiyya here. And it's, wajib. it's not wajib if it's just a fear. It's wajib if you know for a fact you will get in trouble. If it's just a mild concern, it's mustahab, but it's not wajib. Yeah, but you don't know what these, the Wahhabis will Exactly. Do. So if it's a serious uh, concern, right. then yes, you should do taqiyya. Yes. No, if you did taqiyya, if you did taqiyya, you were in circumstances where you could get persecuted for that salah, and you did it like them, your salah is valid, you don't have to repeat it. You do not have to repeat it, yes. So why is taqiyya mandatory in acts of worship? Why is it not optional? Taqiyya is mandatory for a number of reasons. Number one, to save the Shia. Had it not been for taqiyya, there would not be a single Shia on the face of the planet today. They also do strict taqiyya, yes. Yes, and, that, and they've survived. It's a survival mechanism. So that's one reason why the Imams taught the Shia to do that, to keep us alive. Number two, there are hadiths that state Allah wants to be worshipped in taqiyya. You know when taqiyya started, by the way? During which Prophet's time? Any, any guess? No, go back, go back, Adam alayhim salam. After which incident? When Cain killed Abel. Abel was supposed to be the next successor to Adam. Out of jealousy that God appointed Habil, Abel, as the successor to Adam. Out of jealousy, Habil killed him. So after Habil, Abel was killed, Allah revealed to Adam, choose your son, Hibatullah Sheath. In English we call him Seth. Choose Sheath as your next successor, but keep it a secret. Don't reveal it to anyone. Reveal it to those who can handle it. Don't make a public announcement because at that time, Adam had a number of children and they were growing, right? Adam lived 1,000 years on earth. So he had many children, many, many children. Yes, all from his wife Eve. And the hadith says, um, I think up to the 70th child or the 70th year, I don't remember, is it after the 70 years or the 70th child, she would deliver twins in pairs. Yes. Yes, that's how the world started. 
all these children of Adam So Allah tells Adam, don't make a public announcement about sheath, your son. Be careful with it, do taqiyya, because the same thing will happen. There will be jealous people from your progeny who, are going to, who, who will try to kill him. And they've already learned from Qabil how to kill. Wasn't the first time, right? It, it, it has happened before. So taqiyya started from the time of Adam salam. Every prophet of God went through taqiyya. Even the prophet himself in Mecca, he didn't go public with everything. He took it step by step. He would reveal some things to close companions. In public, he would not reveal certain things. That's a type of taqiyya. It's a, it's, a, it's a stage of taqiyya because taqiyya comes in many forms and stages. When you're not revealing everything, that's a type of taqiyya. Now yes, the Prophet's taqiyya was different than Imam Ali's taqiyya because their circumstances were different, but the original idea is the same. Same concept over here. So the second reason Allah wants to test humanity and one test is through taqiyya to test those who are doing taqiyya, because I'll tell you something, this might seem counterintuitive, but worshiping God in taqiyya is more difficult than not doing taqiyya and going out there and practicing your faith. Have you seen some people, they've got the energy and the passion, they just want to go out in society, right, flexing their muscles, they go out in society and they want to practice the way their madhab teaches them, Sometimes when you have to take a step back, be patient and not reveal all of your faith, that's hard, that's very hard. For many people that's hard and that's how you're tested. That's how you're tested, that's how others who are persecuting you, that's also how they're tested. So there's a hadith that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in addition to him being worshipped publicly, he also wants to be worshipped in taqiyya and privately. Yes. Yes, now that's a different topic. How did the children of Adam السلام, proliferate? You know, who did they marry? Because we know that siblings don't marry siblings. That's another discussion. Yes, there are hadiths that say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created a female for Habil um, who, whose origin was from Hur al Ain. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created a female for Qabil whose origin was from jinn. Then they had children, now the children were cousins, they married each other. Yeah, that's another discussion. Yes. Okay, so the reason why I asked that first question is because I do agree with you, it is more difficult to actually do taqiyya than to go out there and openly uh, practice your, your worship. So if, one, if somebody couldn't really do taqiyya, like they just couldn't, they just never had the heart to do it. They can't pray, you know, the way other people they have to remind themselves that this prayer you're doing, who's it for? Allah wants it in taqiyya mode. Who are you worshipping? Am I worshipping my own desires and wants and suggestions or am I worshipping Allah? That's why I said it's difficult to do taqiyya. You just expanded on that point. Some people, they, they don't feel comfortable. Tell them, Habibi, who are you worshipping? If you're worshipping Allah, Allah does not want this prayer from you. He wants the taqiyya prayer from you. So just remind yourself, who are you worshiping? And worship God the way He wants. Yes. Let's say someone doesn't do taqiyya and they kill him. 
If it's an act of worship? Uh, yeah, if it's a worship like you're supposed And it was wajib for him to do taqiyah? This person violated an Islamic law. It depends on Allah's mercy and it depends whether this person was ignorant of this law or not. If this person was really ignorant, they were never educated about it, they thought that their obligation was to continue that way, yes, there's room for Allah's forgiveness. But if this person knows that violating taqiyah is haram, praying that way is haram, and he will get killed, Allah st can still forgive, but he's, he's, he will be blamed for that. Because he caused his own destruction without permission from God. That's like, you, that's like committing suicide. Your life is not only more precious, but the command of Allah is for you to stay alive. So when you caused your destruction, that's just like committing suicide, you had no right. Allah did not give you that right to put yourself in that situation which will lead you to dying. This is if it concerns an act of worship, remember. The first one that we discussed which we said is optional, is if you're required to condemn Allah and the Prophet, that's optional, you can choose to be you know, killed in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or you can do taqiyya. And the best example is Ammar and his parents. What his parents did was right, what he did was right. They became shaheed, he is a warrior too. Yes brother. Yes. And also, um, what about taqiyah for like when it comes to beliefs? Like, let's say you don't come and outright say to the people, "Hey, I'm a Shia," but then in discussions, let's say a theological concept comes up, and they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." For example, Allah can be seen, and you and your belief, you're like, "No." What about taqiyah over here? Is it optional? Wajib? So, in this circumstance, would you describe if you were to continue this theological argument? and to establish that Allah is not physical or He cannot be seen. Will that cost you your life? No, but it depends how severe the consequences are. If it's severe consequences, like being imprisoned for 30 years, being tortured where you know that severely harms you and puts you in danger, then you should do taqiyah. But if it's not to that extent, then depending on the circumstance, sometimes it's better to show them the truth, yes, and to argue for the correct beliefs. But if that's going to cost you your life right. and religion doesn't depend on it, then yeah. But regardless, it's optional in, in this situation, right? Yes, it's optional. Unless, unless you have to show the truth. You're in a society, no one knows the truth, and it's wajib to show the truth. See, Imam Hussein did not do taqiyya with Yazid. Why? Because religion was at stake. If Imam Hussein would have done taqiyya with Yazid like he did with Muawiyah, religion would have been gone. In that instance, yes, you sacrifice your life. But Imam Hussein, he himself, Imam Hussein, during those nine or ten years of Muawiyah's rule, he did taqiyya. Because he, you know, made a peace treaty with uh, Muawiyah. Imam Hussein continued that peace treaty. That's, that's a type of taqiyya. But when it came to Yazid, the circumstances changed, religion was at stake. So Imam al-Hussein saved religion. He could not do taqiyya in that uh, example, yes. Um, okay, what are the acts of worship that, that, are, that fall under the, um, the law of taqiyya? Every act of worship that we do differently from them. So prayer, 
uh, fasting in the month of Ramadan. You know, they, they break their fast right at sunset. According to most of our maraja, we wait like 15 minutes. What about like if you're in like a really hostile Christian environment, they don't want you to fast? Okay, if you're in a hostile Christian environment, such that if you fast, you'll get persecuted. Yeah, yeah don't fast. Okay. Eat in front of them. Let's say they suspect that you're fasting and they tell you prove it, that you're not fasting. Here, eat, drink. Yes. So it's not only with other Muslims. Remember, it's, it's with non-Muslims too. It's with non-Muslims as well. So we have to see what the scholars state in this uh, you know, example. Uh, would your fast break and then you would make it up later or no? Some scholars believe that no, the fast is valid. Even if, you, if, even if they forced you to eat, as long as it was in taqiyya, it's valid. What about hijab? Now with hijab, if it gets to the point where yes, there will be imminent physical danger, right? Uh, and it's not a necessity for you to go out, then scholars have mentioned yes. In those circumstances, one may put off the hijab to protect their life. But remember, it has to be a necessity. If you're going out and shopping, you don't have to. Somebody else can do it for you. But if it's a necessity for you to leave the house, then yes. That actually happened in Iran decades ago at the time of the first Shah, when he banned the hijab. So any Muslim woman who was wearing the hijab in Iran, if she would come out, the guards or the police would beat her. Most believing women stayed at home, unless for necessity like you have to go to the hospital or whatever. If it was not a necessity, scholars say stay home. If it's shopping, let the men do, do the shopping. So if it's a necessity, she can take off the hijab. If it's not, let's say she's a single mom. There's no one who could work, no one who could help her. She's got kids to feed and she's in that hostile environment, then she can. In those areas where she suspects that she will get physically harmed, then yes. Ali ibn Yaqeen, the Imam السلام, taught him the wudu of taqiyya to save his life. And he did and Allah saved his life. Yeah? So that was wajib? That was wajib because that is an act of ibadah which would have led him to danger. Yes, he had to follow the instruction of the Imam. Yes. If you have the option of changing your city, state, country, and it's practical, feasible, you would have to. We actually have verses in the Quran about that. One verse in the Quran says, um, One verse in the Quran says, when the angels come to take the souls of certain people who were not practicing religion, the angels will tell them, why aren't you? Why weren't you practicing? They told them, we couldn't in our land, in our hometown. We couldn't because the corrupt ones, the elite ones, those who had power, they stopped us from practicing our faith. What do the angels tell them? They told them, wasn't the land of Allah vast? You could have migrated. That's why sometimes migration is wajib. If you're fleeing persecution because of religion, and you can't, you have the option to migrate, you have to migrate. So 
Um, let me pull up the exact surah. Surah An-Nisa. Do you know the verse number? Yes, because it was saving religion. Okay, so that's uh, Surah An-Nisa, verse 97. Very strong wording from the verse. Yeah, you could have migrated. That's why migration in Islam is wajib if your religion depends on it. Yes, except those who couldn't really migrate. Like an old woman, especially in, in the past in a village, she can't make a decision like that. How is she going to migrate? She needs a guardian to take her. She's not educated, she doesn't know how to work. Okay, Allah makes that exception. That's why I said if you can migrate. If you can migrate, you have to migrate. It's wajib. That's why when the Prophet migrated to Mecca or when the migration to Ethiopia happened, it became wajib on some Muslims to migrate because if they had stayed in Mecca, they would have forced them to change their religion. So yes, it became wajib. Another hadith, I think the wording is, No, khafa means in not secrecy but in private, in taqiyya. Yes. That's fine, you don't have to tell everyone, you know, what your faith is. That's okay. Well, no, don't tell them that. I mean, don't tell them something that's not real, but you don't have to reveal your faith. Now, there's another verse in the Holy Quran which establishes the permissibility of taqiyya. That's Surah Ghafir, verse 28. وَقَالَ رَجُلٌ مُؤْمِنٌ مِنْ آلِ فِرْعَوْنَ there was a man from the relatives of Fir'aun, he was a believer. He's the one who was giving them advice to believe in Prophet Musa salam. It was his wife uh, who was working in the palace of the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh killed her and her four children. In any case, Allah says a person from the relatives of Fir'aun, يَكْتُمُ imana. He conceals his faith. So Allah is actually praising this person that he is a believer, but he conceals his faith. That's taqiyya, he did taqiyya. He did not reveal to the Pharaoh and the people that he believed in Musa. He would, you know, play along with them. He would even attend their, you know, idol worshipping ceremonies or when they would worship Fir'aun. He did that in taqiyya, the Qur'an, actually praises him for that. So Ammar was really a great companion who did taqiyya, he was the first to do taqiyya, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praised him for that. The Prophet loved him dearly, he was a very close companion to the Prophet. In one hadith the Prophet told him, Oh Ammar taqtulika al-fi'atul baghiyya, or al-firqatul baghiyya. Oh Ammar, let me tell you who's going to kill you. 
the, uh, the aggressive, oppressive group will kill you. Companions would always wonder who's going to kill Ammar, especially after the fitna during the time of Imam Ali Who's on the right path? Is Aisha and Muawiyah on the right path or is Imam Ali in the right path? The Khawarij, are they on the right path? People were anxious to know who's going to kill Ammar because the Prophet informed the companions and everyone that the evil ones will kill Ammar. Comes the day of Safin, the battle that occurred between Muawiyah and Imam Ali alayhi salam. Muawiyah knew that very well, but he didn't care. But he, he didn't care. He did not care at all. Evil. He knew that he was the baghi, the, aggre- the aggressor. Ammar, in that battlefield, all the companions were watching him. Wherever he'd go, even if he'd go through a valley, they follow him, the good companions. Because they knew that Ammar is going to get killed in this battle. Remember, Ammar at this time was, was in his 90s. Old, very old at the time. They were following him. Everywhere he'd go, because he knew, they knew they'd, he'd have the honor of dying on the right path. And Ammar was so eager to die at Safin. Then finally, shortly before the battle intensified and he became a shaheed, he said, bring me a cup of milk, a drink of of milk. They told him why. He said, because Rasulullah told me, Ammar, the last thing you drink in this life before becoming a shaheed is a cup of milk. They brought him the cup of milk. He drank it, he went to the battlefield, he became a shaheed. That's Ammar ibn Yasir. So his parents had the honor of becoming a shaheed defending the Prophet. He had the honor of becoming a shaheed defending Imam Ali Blessed family. The family of Yasir was a blessed family in Islam. Ammar ibn Yasir radiallahu Now, after these incidents of Muslims being tortured, a very important stage came in the religion of Islam. Quraysh would continue to torture these Muslims. Many of them did not have a powerful family to defend them. The situation was just unbearable. And the Prophet knew that this cannot continue. These evil Meccans are going to torture, they're going to kill. He had to come up with a solution for those Muslims who were really uh, being tortured. They needed a refuge. They needed to go somewhere where they could practice their faith. Quraysh also needed to know that their efforts are futile. You cannot stop Islam, you cannot stop Muslims. So the Prophet is inspired by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to come up with the idea of migration. Which migration? This is now in the fifth year after receiving revelation. The fifth year of Ba'tha. The migration to Habasha. Abyssinia. Abyssinia is modern-day Ethiopia in Africa, southwest of Mecca. The Prophet comes up with an idea. He tells the Muslims, those who were going through persecution and they were being tortured, he told them, migrate temporarily to Abyssinia. Why Abyssinia? Why not some other place? A number of reasons. Number one, distance. It was very close to Mecca because all you had to do is get to the coast 
you know, it's about maybe 50 miles from Mecca. If you go west, you'll hit the coast of the Red Sea. You cross the Red Sea, which is not a wide sea, right? It's a narrow sea. You cross the Red Sea, you arrive at Ethiopia. So it was very short. The distance was short. Whereas Syria, Rome, Persia were far places. Number two, the Quraysh, the Meccans, had economic ties with the Romans and the Syrians. They would, you know, frequently travel there to do business. So if these migrants would have gone to Syria, the Meccans would have pressured the leaders of Syria to send them back. And why could they pressure them? Economic ties. If you want us to do business with you, O Syrians, send back these Muslims. So the Prophet had to choose an area which the Quraysh had no ties with. The best place was Ethiopia because the Meccans, the Quraysh had nothing to do with Ethiopia. No business ties, no transactions really. So they had no influence. That's the second reason. The third reason the Prophet he himself explains. He tells the Muslims, إِنَّ بِهَا مَلِكًا لَا يُظْلَمُ عِنْدَهُ أَحَدٌ the Prophet says there's a king, a good king in Ethiopia. He does not oppress anyone, he's just. And it's a land of truth. And whoever seeks refuge in that king, he treats him in a good way. So the Prophet gives them this suggestion. Muslims, flee this persecution, go to Ethiopia. Now the Prophet's words, Ardu Sidqin, land of truth, indicates that the people of Ethiopia, those Africans, were good-hearted people. You know, they had their fitrah, they were worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sincerely, it was a healthy community and society, it was generally speaking morally upright, it was a good environment for those Muslims. Now what was their religion? They were Christians. The king of Abyssinia was Christian, they were on the path of Prophet Isa salam, on the correct path of Prophet Isa salam. Now, Najashi, that's his name. The name of the king was Najashi. Now, the Prophet also did not want to send them to Rome or Persia because the Romans were idol worshippers. The Persians were not monotheists either. They were Majus or some other religions. The Prophet sent them to people of the book. He sent them to a monotheistic society that believes in Allah and the prophets of God. So that was the closest, best place where the prophet chose for those early Muslims. Yes? Najashi, yes. Najashi, yes, Najashi, I believe either him or maybe his father. Yes, see, Abraha initially was good, he was Christian, then he defected, he became corrupt. So Abraha was initially Christian, he was sent by the Christian leaders to Yemen, but then once he solidified his power, he became corrupt and he wanted to demolish the Kaaba. So he may have had something to do with Najashi, either that Najashi or maybe his father. Because remember, this Najashi, the Prophet at this time is 45 years old. And the Prophet was born the year of the elephant, so it's unlikely that it was him. So even if you see the word Najashi, maybe it was his father. You know, the king of Abyssinia is called Najashi. 
like Caesar, the Caesar of Rome, is not one person. The king of Rome was called Caesar, so the same probably applies to Najashi. So the prophet, he tells them to go to uh, Abyssinia. However, he tells them not to go at once. He tells them leave secretly in groups. How many Muslims went in that migration? About 83 or 82? So some 82, 83 Muslims went to Abyssinia. The Prophet told them, look, if Quraysh realizes that you're going, they will persecute you. So go secretly. So the first group, they didn't go at, they didn't go at once. The first group were 14 people, 10 men, 4 women. 10 men and 4 women went, they reached the Red Sea, Quraysh found out that 14 Muslims are migrating somewhere. They chased them to the Red Sea. When they got to the Red Sea, it was too late. The Muslims had already taken a boat to the other side. Now, another reason why the Prophet sent them to Abyssinia is because Quraysh had no naval force. They had no clue how to navigate a boat. So if you're on a boat, that's it, you're safe. Whereas if you try to go to Syria, oh, they had horses, they, within a day they could reach you. Mm -hmm. So that was another reason why the Prophet ﷺ chose Abyssinia. Quraysh just had no way of going and attacking them there. They were safe once they got to the other side. So that happy when they the Muslims? No, they were not happy, we'll see why. They were not happy, this disappointed them big time. So that's the first group that goes. Um, Uthman ibn Mav'un, that great companion, he was, you know, one of them who went on that migration to Ethiopia. Um Salama, the wife of the Prophet she also is one of the migrants. Later she becomes the wife of the Prophet. At this time, of course, she wasn't. She was the wife of Abu Salama. Abu Salama, Um Salama, they go. They were a family who migrated to Abyssinia. Now these incidents that we'll discuss now are narrated by Um Salama. She tells us exactly what happened there. Now why were the Quraysh ticked off? Remember Quraysh wanted power and to suffocate Islam. When the Muslims leave and migrate, they have the freedom to spread Islam. Now they're no longer in your control. And that encourages more people to become Muslim and then migrate. They did not like that. It was an embarrassment for them. Because Quraysh initially they dismissed Islam, ah the stupid religion, these crazy followers, in one night will crush them. They couldn't. When they escaped, they realized this is serious. They're now out of our control. From Ethiopia, they will spread Islam. And really the seeds of Africa becoming Muslim was this migration. Why do you think so many African nations are Muslim? The seed, the seed of it, was planted by Ja'far, the brother of Imam Ali alayhi salam. Majority of the people are Christian. Today, today there is a sizable Muslim population in Ethiopia, but the majority are Christians. That in later in history, there were many uh, political reasons, but I'm talking about Africa as a whole, Northern Africa. Why are most Northern African countries Muslims? Many factors, one of them was this this migration. So this really solidified Islam. Now the Prophet he appointed Ja'far, the brother of Imam Ali to be the spokesperson and the leader of the Muslims. So when those 82, 83 Muslims gathered 
in Ethiopia. Who was their leader? Ja'far, the brother of Imam Ali Ja'far al-Tayyar. Now there are some claims that Uthman ibn Affan, he was the first person to migrate with his family. This is contradicted, this is doubtful, why? Because this is contradicted by historical reports that the first family to migrate was Abu Salama and Umm Salama. And if they mean the first individual to migrate, this is also contradicted by reports that state uh, Salit or Sulayt ibn Amr or Hatib ibn Abi Amr, they were the first to migrate. So this is doubtful because we have contradictory reports. We don't know if Uthman really, Uthman ibn Affan was the first you know, of the companions to migrate. There are reasons for us to reject that or at least doubt that. Have you even accepted Yeah, I was about to ask that. Have you accepted so, so the event of Habasha was around 5th or 6th year. It seems that he had just accepted Islam, yes. Now, Sayyid, um, sorry, before you, uh, before yes. we go on to the next topic, um, is the verse in Surah Al-Imran, is this about Najashi? Or was it revealed in his honor? What surah is this? Oh, no, no, second to last verse of Al-Imran. Al-Imran. Ali Imran is mainly a Madani uh, surah. I don't recall now. I can look at the tafsir and double check. But Ali Imran, as far as I remember, it's a Madani uh, surah. Maybe just that verse. It does happen quite often that you have a chapter that's Madani, but maybe some verses are Mecki. Yeah, that may be possible. I doubt it, but I'll check inshallah. Now, when the Quraysh became furious that these Muslims fled, they dispatched two representatives, Amr ibn al-As, that person who was anti-Imam Ali and Imara ibn Walid. Remember Imara was that youth whom they wanted to trade with the Prophet when they made that offer with Abu Talib, the brother of Khalid ibn al-Walid. They sent these two to represent the Quraysh and to negotiate with the Najashi. They went, they met Najashi, Najashi had given refuge to those 82, 83 Muslims. They were led by Ja'far, the brother of Imam Ali Now when they met Najashi, they told Najashi, they brought them uh, gifts, luxurious gifts. They gave it to Najashi and his aides, the aides were very you know, happy that they got all these gifts. So they were willing to negotiate with them. Why have you come here? They told them, look, the elders of Mecca have sent us. And the reason why here, we're here, these 82 Muslims, they're corrupt, they've abandoned our religion, they've caused a rift in our society, they've come up with it, they've invented a new religion. It's not our religion, it's not even your religion, you're a Christian, they're not even Christians. So we ask you respectfully to send them back to Mecca, their families, their uncles are waiting for them. Najashi was just, and he was smart. Najashi said, now this was an enticing offer because you're getting a lot of gifts. Najashi said, I have to hear them first. You've presented your case. Let me hear their case. So he calls upon them. Who's your spokesperson? Ja'far al-Tayyar. Ja'far ibn Abu Talib, the brother of Imam Ali salam. He was their spokesperson. He tells him, O oh, Ja'far, 
this person, you heard their claim. What do you, what's your response to that? He said, O king, O Najashi, we were a group of people in Mecca, a society that did everything immoral, everything corrupt. We worshipped, and when he says we, meaning the Meccan society, we worshipped idols. We had no sanctity for life. Uh, adultery was co committed, no respect for women. And we'd bury the infants alive. And he mentions all those negative things that happened in Meccan society. Then God sends us a messenger who taught us how to worship the one God, to reject the idols. He enjoins the good. He teaches us how to give charity. He teaches us how to look after the orphan. And he's made all these vices haram. And he mentions and he mentions and he mentions. Najashi is surprised. He's like, well, I'm hearing very good things about this Prophet. Very excellent things about this Prophet. Then he tells him, he's heard about some verses from the Quran that this you know, final Prophet has some verses. He tells him, can you read a few verses for us? Let me hear, what does this Muhammad teach you? Smart. Ja'far was smart. Which chapter does he read? Surat Maryam. He says, yes, Najashi, I'll read it for you. He begins, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Kaf ha ya ayn saad, dhikru rahmati rabbika abdahu zakariya, idhnada rabbahu nida'an khafiya. He begins the story. Remember the story of Zakariya, how he did not have children. He prayed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to get children. And then he transitions into the story of Maryam, her virgin birth, and Jesus alayhi salam. Imagine Ja'far. Ibn Abi Talib reciting these verses, historical accounts say the beard of Najashi becomes soaked with tears when he hears these words. After Ja'far finishes these words, Najashi tells him, I swear by God, these are the teachings of Isa ibn Maryam. What you just read is what we believe in. These are the teachings of Isa ibn Maryam. He tells those two, go back. I'm not going to release a single Muslim. Go back. They're very embarrassed now. They don't know what to do. What should they tell the elders of Quraysh? We failed in our mission. Now Amr ibn al-As, who was more evil than Amara, Amr ibn al-As, he says, tomorrow I've got a plan. I'm going to mention something. He's going to execute them all. Amara tells him, don't. They have family, there are distant relatives, don't do this to them. He says, no, I will. The next day, he goes to Najashi and he tells him, Najashi, ask them what they believe about Jesus. They say he's a slave. He doesn't say that. Amr ibn al-As, he just says slave. He calls them, he tells them, what's your belief in Jesus? Tell us. They become nervous. So they decide, should we tell him, should we do taqiyah or no? <laughs> Ja'far and the companions, they say, look, let's say the truth. As God says it, we're not going to change any aspect of the truth. Whatever happens, happens, even if he kills us. He wasn't going to kill them, he was probably going to send them back. He tells him, now Ja'far, the spokesperson, he tells Najashi, we believe that Jesus is Abdullah, the slave of Allah. And Ruhullah, he's the spirit of Allah, and the word of Allah that he gave to Maryam. 
عبد الله وروح الله وكلمته ألقاها إلى مريم. You know what Najashi says? Historical accounts say Najashi, there were some sticks on the ground. He grabbed some sticks. He held them in his hand and he said, I swear by God. You see the size of these small sticks? What you just said is exactly what Jesus would preach. And even the size of this stick, there is no discrepancy between what you said and what Jesus would preach. Which reveals Najashi did not worship Jesus. He was amongst those Christians who were truly muwahideen. They believed in Allah and they also followed the path of Jesus The hadith says when, they, when he did that, his aides snorted. They were so upset, what is this? Apparently they did not know that he did not worship Jesus. He told them, go, those two men, go back to Quraysh. I'm not releasing these two. And then he said, he made a public declaration, whoever harasses a Muslim in my territory, whoever slanders a Muslim, whoever condemns a Muslim, I'll imprison them. I'll deal, I'll deal them with justice. So the Najashi, he gave them a safe refuge. And this was really a big, big victory for the Muslims. The Prophet was very, very happy. Now one person out of these 82, 83 defected and became a Christian, but the others, they kept their faith. Now something happens which causes some Muslims, about 30 of them, to go back to Mecca. Next time we'll examine what that case was. There are some fabrications that the Prophet made a compromise with Quraysh, which encouraged some of them to go back. We'll examine that later.